0: You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week nine of the study in His Image. Today's teaching is entitled, God Most Truthful. Good evening, ladies. It is a gift to be gathering with you all again this evening on a Thursday night. I trust that considering the character of our great God this semester has been helpful in both expanding and deepening your understanding of how truly incredible he is. So before us tonight, God most truthful. Let's begin as we often do with a definition to help center our thoughts on our topic. So here are some definitions of the word that I I found for the word truthful telling or expressing the truth, honest, characterized by accuracy or realism, true to life, and a verifiable or indisputable fact. Also, do you remember the Hebrew word emet from our video two weeks ago? If so, you recall that that word for faithfulness is closely linked to this one for truth, and it involves that idea of support or stability. He is our firm foundation, strong and steady. Remember? (laughs) Strong (laughs) and steady. We could say that something truthful is faithful in conforming to facts. Will you join me in prayer to start? Father, we are grateful to be your daughters. Thank you for our time here tonight. I pray that you would remove the distractions and cares from the day, from our minds, and help us to focus on you. Would you please receive and bless and multiply my own meager gifts, Jesus, for the benefit of all who have gathered here. We want to make much of you in this place. In the powerful, mighty name of Jesus, amen. So as Jen says so well in our book, God is the origin of truth and its sole determiner. What he defines as true is eternally true, unchangingly true. Truth can be stated to be anything that conforms to reality. For example, the temperature that water boils or that ice freezes, right? These are not really up for debate. The height of Mount Kilimanjaro, these are realities, facts that can be measured by humans. But God articulates a reality that goes beyond what we as humans are capable of measuring, not only in the physical world, like out far in the galaxy or to the deepest depths of the ocean that we still have not reached, but also in the spiritual realm, where we are limited by time as well as understanding. We cannot accurately measure the effects of sin in our lives into the future, how it harms us or harms those we love, and how our sinful nature infects so much of our motives and thoughts. The Bible makes it very clear that we do not determine truth, but rather we discover truth. Human beings from the time of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel have always wanted to reserve the right to determine spiritual truth. We want to pick and choose and ignore what we don't prefer. But we do so at our own risk. And it certainly isn't popular in our culture today to hold to a standard of truth that does not change. Christianity flatly denies that we are qualified to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. While it is a popular idea today, and I'm sure we all hear it often, your truth isn't found anywhere in Scripture. Instead, we see in Psalm 119, among many other places, that God's truth is unchanging. In verse 142, your law is perfectly true. And in verse 151, all your commands are true. And finally, in verse 160, all your words are true. All your just laws will stand forever. God's law, his commands, his words, these are trustworthy and true. Because the belief in God's absolute truth is faced with such skepticism and even scorn in our world today, I thought it might be helpful to take a bit of time tonight to consider Jesus' words on this topic. I'm sure by now that you can repeat with me, what is true of God is true of Jesus. We're going to look together at John 14, verses 1 to 11 so you're welcome to open your bible but the text is also going to be on the screen i would like to read through the whole section first and then we'll go back and make a few observations so a little bit of old-fashioned bible study happening tonight (laughs) first it's helpful to consider the context just prior to this chapter the disciples and jesus have been having the passover meal together During this meal, Judas is announced as the one who will betray Jesus. And Peter jumps in, as Peter often does, promising that he would never do such a thing. In fact, he would lay down his life for the master. But Jesus informs him that he won't even make it until daybreak, and that he will deny him three times. This is understandably upsetting news. Plus, Jesus had told all of them earlier that they couldn't go with him on this part of the rescue plan so they are anxious and in turmoil chapter 14 begins a section of jesus last words to them on this final night in the upper room so john 14one 11. don't be troubled you trust god now trust in me there are many rooms in my father's home and i am going to prepare a place for you If this were not so, I would tell you plainly, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know where I am going and how to get there. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We haven't any idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had known who I am, then you would have known who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, Philip, don't you even yet know who I am, even after all the time that I have been with you? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So, why are you asking to see him? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of what you have seen me do. So, he begins at this section with encouragement don't be troubled he knows that they're troubled and anxious i'm sure he can feel it in the room and of course he's jesus the lord he knows all things but he says don't let your heart be troubled you don't have to be in turmoil rather trust me you trust god now trust me His next phrase there are many rooms in my father's home I chose this passage in this version specifically because scholars say that this idea of rooms is probably the closest to the original text Um, I know some of us have the idea I've heard the word mansions but rooms because it's a dwelling place or an abode and he's saying don't be worried. There's many rooms. We're not going to run out. In fact, I have a place just for you. Not only that, but I am going to prepare the way for you to be able to get in. I heard a sermon on that John Piper gave on this passage and he talked about how Jesus isn't preparing because he still has work to do, you know. God created the whole world in 6 days, but he's pre- saying he's preparing because He needs to go and finish the work of redemption so that heaven can be accessed by those of us who put our trust in him. At this point, heaven is still closed to us as sinners because redemption has not been completed yet when he's saying this to them. I'm not here to tell you that that's 100% true. I'm saying compare that in your Bibles, but it was interesting to me to think of it that way. Also, I'm going to prepare a place for you a specific place for you. So it's not a hotel, right? We're not guests. He's preparing a place at his house. We're children in the house. We belong there. We have a place where we belong. You also might be aware that in this time dwellings were typically made out of stone. And that when a son took a bride, they would add a section onto the house, like a wing or a room, a dwelling onto the house. So That just backs up this idea that it's one, perhaps, it's one big house with lots of specific rooms for each person. And it's prepared specifically for that new arrival. That gives me great comfort. And he's encouraging them and trying to comfort them with these words. Then he says in this next line, as we're thinking about the truthfulness of God, if this were not so, I would tell you plainly. I'm not deceiving you. I'm telling you the truth, right? I would tell you plainly, I don't have anything to gain by lying to you here. And I will come and get you. That's pretty personal, isn't it? He's going to come back to get them. And as believers, he's going to come to get us. There isn't any moment, even though we all know that there are moments it might feel this way, that we are forsaken. Because he says, I'm going to come and get you, and you will always be with me where I am. So the focus is on that reunion with Christ. So the next part, Thomas is the first one to admit, we don't, I, I don't understand what you are talking about. <laughs> and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus himself makes it abundantly clear that there are not many ways to the Father in heaven. But let not your heart be troubled, because I am going to open the way. I am the way. And, just as the Father is true, he is truth. What he's telling them is the truth. So, we move on to more encouragement. After Philip's joining in the chorus of, we don't really understand. And he says, I'm guessing it's a little like, sort of like a big sigh, like, okay, I don't get this, but if you would just show us the Father, we would be satisfied. Like, I don't understand all this stuff up here you're talking about, (laughs) but we're here to see God and learn about God, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. That will be enough. And Jesus says, Don't you even yet know who I am? Right? Even after these three years, all the teachings, all the miracles, don't you see that I and the Father are one? Again, Jesus himself is stating here that he is God. It's not just scholars telling you this or teachers telling you this. Jesus himself makes these assertions, and he is the truth, and he is telling them the truth. So don't let your heart be troubled, because Jesus and the Father are one. And as he tells him, if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. If you have Jesus, you have the Father. I don't necessarily, again, understand or be able to explain to you how that symbiotic relationship works. But there are some things that we just have to take on faith. And he does seem to be saying here again and again, believe me, trust me. I know it's beyond you. <laughs> but trust me. I'm, I have a plan. I'm working it out. I'm making a way. I am the way. <clears throat> so, the next passage, the end. The words I say are not my own, but the Father who lives in me does his work through me or in another version, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Abide, that's a really good word, isn't it? We could look at other passages in John that talk about the importance of abiding. But again, here in his own words, Jesus is stating, in some way, that God abides in him and that he abides in the Father. He later does. He's going to ask us to abide in him. This is a very close relationship, right? And it's so much so that he says that God is working through him to do his work, even though Jesus is the one that they see. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe me. Trust me. And then that last line, at least believe because of what you've seen me do, is so interesting to me that he understands our, their frailties, our frailties so much that he kind of seems to give way to that, right? Like, okay, if you're not going to believe all the things I'm saying to you, then at least remember the miracles that you've seen, trust the evidence. Recall the things that you've seen happen in these last three years. The words of God spoken at his baptism. The transfiguration some of them were there for. The feeding of many people. The giving sight to blind people. So many miracles. If you're having a hard time trusting me, at least believe the evidence. The Father and I are showing you who I am. Our Lord Jesus is truthful. His promises to the disciples and to us are true. We can trust him because what he says is true. He cannot lie. We have discussed in previous weeks how forgetful we can be, and that we need to remind ourselves of the truth repeatedly, and remind our souls that we are not the first to follow the narrow way. It's not personal truth that we need, as Jen says, but rather shared truth Preserved and passed down from one believing generation to the next, personalized to us in our present day. That shared truth is available to you and I every day within the pages of Scripture. And so we're going to close tonight by sharing together an affirmation of the truths of the gospel that has been known and recited by Christians throughout many centuries. What I have for us tonight is a modern version of the Apostles' Creed. So you may be familiar with an older version, so if we garble the words a bit, no worries. (laughs) The important thing is that we want to remind our minds, and our hearts, and our souls of what we are putting our trust and our confidence in. I'm going to ask that we stand and recite the words together. Are we ready? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for joining us tonight, ladies. Have a good week, and we'll see you next week for Chapter 10.